Well, let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us from this unique part of your word, Lamentations. Uh, please speak to our hearts as, and uh, speak into our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, direct our eyes towards you and your love and faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a Peanuts cartoon strip. Uh, I don't know if you know Peanuts, but it's the one with Charlie Brown and Snoopy and those people. Uh, and there's a, there's a cartoon strip in which Snoopy's brother, Spike, uh, another dog, uh, is alone in the desert with, just with his memories. And uh, he sits down next to a cactus and he says, why do I live all alone out here in the desert? Uh, and then he turns to the cactus and he says, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anyone before. He says, years ago when I was young, I was out walking with some people. Suddenly, a rabbit ran across in front of us. Get him, shouted the people. Even though I didn't want to, I darted after the rabbit. I wouldn't have known what to do even if I'd caught him. Then it happened. The rabbit ran into the road and was hit by a car. I was stunned. Why did I do it? Oh, how I hated myself and how I hated those people who shouted, get him. So I came out here in the desert where I couldn't hurt anything again. I've never told this to anyone before. Then he turns and remembers that he's talking to a cactus and he says, I guess I still haven't. Peanuts cartoons can be surprising uh, because you expect cartoons to just to be pure fun and a bit of a laugh, uh, but Peanuts sometimes shocks you with realism. Uh, sometimes life doesn't go the way we want it to and there's a fair bit of pain and regret and loneliness in life and it's not unhelpful to acknowledge that and that's what is unique about peanuts and that's why they're sort of more for grown-ups grown than for kids. Um, as a child, my auntie had lots of peanuts books um, and I used to get them when I was over there and read them and sometimes I'd come across one like this one and I would think, what's gone wrong with this cartoon? <laughs> is this not supposed to be like this, surely? That's no fun at all. Well, we are looking at Lamentations this week, and the issue in Lamentations is how we respond to suffering. Uh, the series is called The Way Down and The Way Up that we're in at the moment, this, the, uh, over this term in church. Um, and in this series, we've looked at two pre-exilic prophets, that is before the exile, Amos and then uh, Habakkuk, the way down into judgment. And after this week, we'll look at two post-exilic prophets, that is after the exile, Haggai and then Malachi, and they are the way up into blessing out of the exile. But this week, Lamentations is the midpoint, it's the low point of the V, uh, that is, it's the bottom, it's the, it's the depths of the exile. And so that's what we're looking at this week. It's, it's not a cheery topic, uh, not a cheery week in many ways. Now, if you're looking for Lamentations in the Bible, um, you might have had a go when Luella hopped up and not found it, and now you're perhaps you could have another go, you'll find it in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, it's not technically one of the minor prophets, but it's kind of close. Um, it's unique and it's valuable uh, because, firstly, it's a warning, I think. Uh, it's almost, if you, if you leave out chapter 3 of Lamentations, it's almost like a look into hell. So it can be very sobering. Secondly, it's a mirror for us in some way at least. Um, we might see something of our own sadness and suffering reflected in Lamentations. Um, we don't have to pretend to be happy all the time, even as Christians. So it's a bit of a mirror on our lament. And thirdly, it's an invitation. It, it offers God to us. 
at the point where we might feel we need him the most, there he is in the middle of Lamentations. Uh, If you imagine yourself sitting at the bottom of a very deep well, you know, 300 metres deep, and you're right at the bottom and you're sitting there, and to the left is deep darkness, and to the right is deep darkness, but you look straight up, and there, straight above you, is a point of light 300 metres away. Uh, Well, that's the structure of Lamentations. It's very dark at the start and very dark at the finish, but in the middle, a point of light, uh, which is the bit that we had read out from chapter 3. Now, in Lamentations, there are five chapters and they are five separate poems. Um, A little bit of technical stuff which might be significant is that the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters in it uh, and chapters 1, 2, 4 and 5 of Lamentations all have 22 verses and chapters 1, 2 and 4, all the verses start with the next letter of the alphabet. I think he got sick of doing that when he got to chapter 5 but it still has 22 verses, it's just not an acrostic like that. But the middle chapter of Lamentations is like a triple acrostic. It has 66 verses, not 22. And it has 22 groups of three verses. And in each of the groups of three, they start with each successive letter. So there's three lines starting with Aleph, three lines starting with Beit, etc. They're the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. I can remember four letters of the Hebrew alphabet from my one year of Hebrew study 28 years ago. (laughs) Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. There you go. I knew it would be useful. Uh, So Lamentations, the structure of it, it's like a hope sandwich. So it's got very thick slices of darkness either side and there's hope in the middle of chapter 3 and the structure of it sort of points us inwards towards that. So we're going to look at the darkness first as you'll see from the outline that you've been given uh, and then we'll look at the light in chapter 3. So the darkness chapters uh, basically looks at Judah's miserable situation from all kinds of different angles. Uh, None of these are light and fluffy. Just to set the tone, let me read you the first few verses of the book, chapter 1, verse 1 and following. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labour, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So there's a real fall from grace. You know how sometimes um, you find those stories on the internet um, from on the trashy news websites that sort of gleefully report that this glamorous Hollywood star from 20 years ago who was on the red carpet and everybody wanted to know them 20 years ago, now works in a supermarket. And uh, they've got a photo of this poor woman sort of running groceries through the checkout and she doesn't have any makeup on and she's looking very unglamorous. And it sort of gleefully reports on her fall from grace. Well, that's Jerusalem's situation, according to those verses. Um, Jerusalem was a queen, but now she's a slave and a pauper and untouchable and no one wants to know her. And she's traumatised by the violence and the horror that brought about her fall. Now, the four darkness chapters, chapters 1, 2, 4 and 5, are not laid out neatly in themes. I don't know if you studied them during your small group during the week, but they're kind of a little bit hard to get a hold on. Um, The forms are all mixed together. Sometimes you you read them and sometimes you think, 
well, who is it talking now and who are they talking to and now somebody seems to be praying and it all seems to be jumbled up, but it's, the vibe is very obvious. It's sadness, it's isolation, it's bitterness and it's shame. And I think that in each of the, the, these four chapters, one, two, four and five, um, each of them has a prominent feature. I'm not saying it's the main point of the chapter, but there's a prominent feature that, that you can notice in each of the chapters and I just want to point out those features. Uh, a feature of chapter one is the sense that we deserve this. Uh, so it's terrible and it's horrific, but we deserve this. So look at chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honoured her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. So there's a sense of great shame. People have seen me naked. In other words, her sins have been exposed and it's an awfully shameful, guilty time because they know that they've deserved it. You know how you might do something wrong and you don't feel that guilty about it, but then when other people find out about it, you suddenly feel so much more guilt and shame for what you've done. Well, this is very public judgment from God on his people and so it's shameful. Uh, in the second half of chapter 1, Jerusalem is like a person who is speaking and so see verse 14, it says, uh, My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck, and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. Uh, see verse 20. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there is only death. So they know that they fully deserve what they are receiving. When we suffer, sometimes it's, it's, uh, we, we, we like to think that in some measure it's not our fault. Um, it's like a little consolation when we suffer. At least I don't totally deserve this. And in, and in most cases it's true. We don't necessarily deserve everything that we go through in this life. But in this case... Judah knew that she couldn't claim uh, that she didn't deserve it. She knew that she entirely deserved what she, had, what, what she was receiving. And so there's no consolation, just has to bear the shame naked before the world. So that's a feature of chapter 1. A feature of chapter 2 is the idea that the Lord did this to us. Now, of course, the Babylonians were the instrument, but it was the Lord who was, doing, who was punishing them for their unfaithfulness. When God set up the covenant near the beginning of the Old Testament, written into the covenant was, if you don't keep your side, if you are unfaithful, then the curse of exile and destruction will come upon you. And they stretched his patience and they ignored his warnings and they stretched his patience a little bit further. And so now that it actually happened, they knew that it was his doing. He'd said all along, this is what I will do if you are unfaithful to the covenant. And so you look at the first half of chapter 2 and you can see written in the language that it's God who did it. He has done this. He has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down. He has swallowed up and torn down and cut off and withdrawn and bur uh, burned and strung his bow and slain. He has done this and he has done this, uh, it keeps saying. In the second half of chapter 2 is the prophet's lament where he, had, he talks to the city and he says, for example, in verse 17, the Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. 
He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. Uh, And then there's a prayer near the end of the chapter, verse 20. Look, Lord, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? So it's true, this is a unique situation because they were God's people. And now, according to verse 21, he has slaughtered them without pity. God has done this to them. Um, It's like they'd spent so long not believing in, in him and calling his bluff and thinking, oh, it'll be okay. We've kind of got God covered. We're kind of going through our rituals and it'll all be fine as if God were just this senile old man who so desperate for friends that he'd put up with anything and never would do anything to anybody. And now that they, they, they see that they should have feared him, they were lucky to be his people, but they'd made, him, they, he made themselves his enemy. And so what he, he did, what he did, what he had threatened to do. Uh, this is worth taking seriously, I think, because some people can't conceive of a God who'll punish sinners. They think, oh, God's just up there and he's a, he just loves everybody and... Uh, It's his job to forgive, and so it'll all be okay. But the Bible says, look at the exile. There is nothing worse, nothing more tragic than making God your enemy, because God is able to carry out what he threatens to do, to judge sin. So chapter 1, we deserve this. Chapter 2, God did it. The feature of chapter 4 is the acknowledgement that other hopes have failed us. So this is a chapter in which... Um, nothing now works as it's supposed to. Um, Everything is disappointing. So verse 1, gold loses its luster and jewels are now worthless. Uh, A bit further on in the chapter, the rich and the famous, the shiny people, the people that everyone used to idolise, are now dirty nobodies in the street. And uh, verses 13 to 16, the prophets and the priests who used to kind of have such influence over the people and were revered and obeyed, are now defiled and rejected and no one wants to do it, have anything to do with them anymore. And in verse 20, even the Lord's anointed, the hope of the nation, is now caught by the enemy and no use to anybody. And uh, I don't know if you've read through chapter 4, but um, a terrible theme in that chapter is even parents, once so caring, you know, there's nothing so reliable as a mother's love, are now crazed and they've turned on their children. Let me read you verse 10 of chapter 4. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. I didn't read that out in the morning service because there are actually little kids in here. But um, notice it says, compassionate women cooked their own children. See, these are are loving mothers. Nothing, there is no hope that's going to work in this situation. Even the love of a mother, the mothers cooked their children. Um, So nothing we might think we can rely on can help us if God is against us. Uh, Judah looked everywhere else for salvation, but they found none. Verse 17, moreover, our eyes failed, looking in vain for help. From our towers we watched for a nation that could not save us. So the point is that if you make God your enemy, there's nothing that can save you, not even the love of your mother. Um, There are those who... They talk like they don't really mind the idea of going to hell. You know, they kind of make light of it. Almost as if hell's where the fun people are going to be, and so I'd kind of rather be there than be with you boring people. uh, Because hell, at least I'll have good company. But the point of chapter 4 is that without God, everything turns to ashes. All other hopes fail. So that's the feature of chapter 4. told you it was cheery lamentations, but... um, 
Chapter 5 is a prayer and its feature is the idea that our future is uncertain. Uh, Chapter 5 begins with the verse, remember Lord what is happening to us and then it lists all the afflictions and then it ends with an appeal to God to remember them, to restore them. But look at the last verse of the book, verse 22, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. So it ends with the question basically, is this forever? That uncertainty is part of the torture, it's part of the darkness, they can't see ahead. Uh, And it was a fair question because historically speaking, the state of Israel was never properly restored after the exile. Before the exile, they were the nation of Israel and, and Judah and they were ruled by God, by the kings that God gave them. But after the exile, they would not be that nation of Israel anymore. They would be the Jews, but they would live under the rule of pagan rulers, uh, never again a proper nation under God. And so the feature of this last chapter is the uncertainty, well, maybe there's no coming back from this. So you see, these uh, four chapters, the four darkness chapters, one, two, four, and five, are thick slices of sadness on the outside of the lamentation sandwich. But the feature chapter is the middle chapter, chapter three, uh, which is about hope. And it's not just set apart because it's 66 verses rather than 22, etc. Uh, it's also written in a much more personal form and it seems to be Jeremiah's testimony. So see verse one of chapter three, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. So this is a more personal chapter and it's in that context that we're given the hope. Um, the future of the nation might be uncertain but there's always hope in God for individuals. And so I am the man and he finds hope in the centre. So uh, that's the feature of of chapter three. And chapter three, like the whole book, has a sandwich structure. Again, there's grief and bitterness on the outsides and hope in the middle. And the hope in the middle is the character of God. Uh, It is the fact that God's primary default attitude to people is not anger, but love and compassion. It's like he says elsewhere in the Old Testament, he is slow to anger, but abounding in love and faithfulness. So God isn't looking for reasons to get angry at us all the time. That's not his nature. His default primary attitude towards us is love and compassion. That's the kind of God he is. And you see that through the Old Testament because it took a long time for God to finally pull the trigger on on Israel. So here, uh, Jeremiah is feeling rotten, Uh, verse 16, God has broken my teeth, God has trampled me, he says. But then in verse 21, yet this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. What is he calling to mind? Well, he's calling God's love and compassion and faithfulness to mind, uh, which is overflowing even to him in his current situation. So see verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. So even at that point of shame and defeat and affliction, he knows that God's love and faithfulness are reaching down to him even as he's sitting at the bottom of this pit. Uh, And even as he wakes up each morning in this darkness, he knows that there is new faithfulness and new love for him in God as he wakes up each morning, even in that situation. And so secondly, he knows that his affliction 
is only going to be temporary. It's only ever temporary with God. If you are holding on to God, then God will not leave you at the bottom of the pit. He may not bring you out of it as quickly as you might like, but he will not leave you there forever. Verse 31 says, For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. So better days will come because God's mercy trumps his judgment for those who depend on him. So then if we know that God still loves us, even in the darkness, and if we know that he won't let it go on forever, uh, how should we handle our suffering? Well, verses 25 to 30 say, we should therefore bear the yoke and wait quietly for God and bury our face in the dust where God has put us for a time. Realise, okay, God has put me here. I'm going to sit here where God has put me and I'm going to wait and know that it's not forever. And verses 40 to 42, make sure you're right with God before God as you sit there. Humble yourself and repent of your sin and make sure you're in a position to receive God's blessing when it's time for him to send it to you again. Keep looking to God. So you see in the darkness chapters, one, two, four and five, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, there's anguish and agitation. But at the centre of the book of Lamentation, where the man of faith is looking up into the light, there's, there's a sort of a calm and a stillness here. Even as he sits in the bottom of the pit, he is waiting quietly. Um, so that's the structure of the book, that's the contents of the book uh, and there's a lot there that you might notice if you read through which of course I wasn't able to talk about here. But I want to finish by noting three ways that a Christian might relate to the book of Lamentations because obviously it was written in a very different situation. How might we as Christians relate to this book? First of all, Lamentations presents to me a despair that I will never fully know as a Christian. If you were to remove chapter 3 from Lamentations, then it basically it would be like looking into hell, uh, the book of Lamentations. There's grief, there's shame, there's isolation, there's bitterness, there's defeat, there's poverty, there's pain. God has become your enemy. That's hell. Uh, like we've noted from the four chapters, you know you deserve it, you know God is punishing you, you know all other hopes have failed, and you know there's no coming back. That sounds like hell to me. But that's a despair that I know that I will never fully know. Why? Because I know that that is the darkness that Jesus entered for me. That's why I know I'll never go there. On the cross, Jesus said, uh, remember the words he quoted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's surrounded by enemies, he's humiliated, he's alone, he's suffering God's wrath because he's bearing my sin. He's in the darkness for me. So can a Christian ever say that, oh, God has bound my sins into a yoke and he's hung them around my neck and I'm walking through my, my life with these sins uh, uh, dragging me down? No, no Christian can ever say that because God hung the yoke of my sin around Christ's neck. And that, that's what was happening when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, if Lamentations 1, 2, 4 and 5 describe something like hell... It's a darkness that I will never fully know because I'm in Christ and, and he went there for me. So I, know I will never have to go there. So Lamentations, I think, helps us appreciate what Jesus has done. Um, 
like we sang in the song, we, we praise him. And why do we praise Jesus? Well, because this is where he went for us. Um, and I, I suppose I've, you know, I've spent the last week kind of reading in, in sort of basically swimming in the book of Lamentations. And uh, I, I really do appreciate what Jesus has done for me, uh, having spent some time just tr- reflecting on the darkness that's reflected in this book. But let me also say, if it's a little glimpse of hell, um, it shows us how important it is to, to belong to Jesus. He is the one who has suffered for the sins of others. And if you've not put your sins on him, if you've not put your trust in him, then this is what you face by yourself. You've got to give your sins to Jesus in order to be saved. Otherwise, you face the darkness yourself. You don't want God to be your enemy. So you need to become a Christian in order to be saved. So that's the first way we might uh, relate to Lamentations. Secondly, Lamentations is a, is a lament that I can partially share at least. Um, God does not punish Christians for their sins. He, he punished Jesus for my sins as a Christian. He doesn't punish me for my sins. But Christians are still in exile in a sense. Uh, we're still waiting to come home. We're still waiting for sin and suffering to end. Sometimes we're disciplined by God. And so we still lament sin and suffering. It's proper for a Christian to lament their sin. My sin is not going to cost me. So why do I lament it? Because I look at what it cost Jesus. And I hate my sin because Jesus had to go through this for me. And I look at how dishonouring to God my sin is. And so there's good reason for me to lament my sin as a Christian. And so our personal prayers, when you sit down to pray to God, as well as our corporate prayers in church, should be marked by lament for sin. Uh, That's why uh, we try to say a confession of sin. If it's not on the screen, then it's part of our prayers in our church services, because it's entirely proper that we acknowledge our sin and we lament it. In the old, um, in the very old Anglican prayer book, uh, the, the general confession, I think, set the right tone for Christians regarding their sin. It said, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. And it says, the remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. That's what the congregation says to God, uh, if using the old prayer book. We should lament our sin. Confession of sin is not a light thing. We realise what Jesus went through. We realise how awful it is. And we should also lament our suffering and the sufferings of the fallen world. Uh, God has his purposes behind our sufferings, but he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. And we know that when Jesus returns and when justice is done, there'll be no more suffering except in hell. And the creation is groaning uh, until the consummation of God's kingdom where everything will be put right. So things are not right at the moment and we know that. And therefore, it's appropriate for us to lament the things that are wrong in our lives and in the world. There's nothing wrong with lamenting. It is worth remembering, though, that as Christians, there's a a new context to this. Uh, The New Testament tells Christians that God lovingly uses our sufferings in our lives as discipline to prepare us for heaven. God is shaping us for heaven and he uses suffering to do that. And it even says in James chapter 1, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. But that doesn't mean we have to like suffering, or, and it doesn't mean we, we pretend it doesn't hurt, or that we can't lament our suffering. It just means that as we lament, 
there is hope at the center like in the book of lamentations and for a christian there can even be joy in the midst of the lament in the midst of the sorrow and the pain because we know god's ultimate purpose so the last thing to note is that lamentations presents a hope that i can clearly see as a christian more clearly than jeremiah could see it that is i'm reminded of the hope of god's love and compassion and faithfulness he's reaching down to me even when i'm at the bottom of the pit and now that jesus has come god's love and his forgiveness and compassion has a face that i can see clearly in the scriptures and i can see it even more clearly than jeremiah could and so there's a hope that i can clearly see and lamentations can function as an invitation to receive the hope of christ look at the darkness all around you look up to god who is the light and you see jesus at the point where you know you need him the most when you're surrounded by the darkness of your own sin and the world that is groaning in pain so when things are dark perhaps weighed down by sin isolated afflicted sorrowful you don't have to move to the desert and have a cactus as your only friend and never tell anyone of your pain and your regret no there is a light up there in god's love and faithfulness even brighter now because of jesus put your trust in him put your hope in him know that he's holding on to you even all the way down to where you are and have hope in him so i'm going to conclude with the prayer that i've printed on the bottom of the outline there which uh, you might like to make your prayer as i read it out now let's pray Heavenly Father, I am often surrounded by the darkness of my sin, the trials that you send, and the fallenness of the world. There is much to lament, but there is always hope in your love and faithfulness, writ large in Christ's sufferings for me. Please help me to trust in you, repent of my sin, bear the yoke, and wait patiently for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.